Well, if you'd like to turn again to Isaiah 66, if you're using the Church Bible, it's on page 625. And it says this. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is this house that you should build for me? And what is this place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them because when I called no one answered, when I spoke they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word, your brothers who hate you and cast out, cast you out for my name's sake, have said that the Lord be glorified, that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies. Before she was in labour, she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labour, she brought forth her children. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord. Shall I who cause to bring forth shut the womb, says your God. Rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her, all you who love her. Rejoice with her in joy, all you who mourn over her. You may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast. You may drink deeply with delight from her glorious abundance. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you shall nurse, you shall be carried upon your hip, and bounced upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you. You shall be comforted in Jerusalem. You shall see and you, your heart shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass. And the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants. And he shall show his indignation against his enemies. For behold, the Lord will come in fire in his chariots like the whirlwind. To render his anger and fury. And his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment. And by his sword will all flesh. And those slain by the Lord shall be many. Those who sanctify and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following one in the midst, eating pig's flesh and the abomination of mice, shall come to an end together, declares the Lord. 
For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues. And they shall come and shall see my glory. And I will set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Paul, and Lud, who draw the bow to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far away, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations, and they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord, on horse and in chariots, and in litters, and on mules, and on dromedaries, to my holy mountain, Jerusalem, says the Lord. Just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord, and some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon, and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Well, in a moment, we're going to have a look at that passage. But before we do, let me just mention a couple of things. The first is there will be an opportunity to ask questions or make comments in light of what we've been thinking about this morning, as soon as we finish the sermon. So do bear that in mind. The other thing to mention is there's a sermon outline in your service sheet, which if it, it, it's helpful, then obviously you can use that. If not, don't worry. And then finally, let's pray and ask God to help us. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the time we have together as we uh, can, can come to the end of our studies in the book of Isaiah. We thank you for all that we've learnt. We do pray, Lord, that it will change the way that we think and the way we think about you. We pray, Lord, in all this, that this would give us a great confidence that you have our salvation um, all set and ready and that we can be confident that it has been fulfilled through your suffering servant. Amen. Well, about nine years ago, Stephen Fry was interviewed on Gay Burns' The Meaning of Life show. And I want to just take a brief extract from that interview and start this morning with that. So the interview runs as follows. Gay Burns begins and asks a question. Suppose it's all true, and you walk up to the pearly gates, and you're confronted by God. What would Stephen Fry say to him? Stephen Fry responds, I would use what is known as theodicy, I think. I'd say, bone cancer in children, what's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God 
who creates a world that's so full of injustice and pain. That's what I'd say. Gayburn responds, do you think you're going to get in? Stephen Fry, no, but I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to get in on his terms. They're wrong. He goes on, Atheism is not just about not believing there is a God, but on the assumption that there is one, what kind of God is he? It is perfectly apparent that he's monstrous, utterly monstrous, and deserves no respect whatsoever. The moment you banish him, your life becomes simpler, purer, cleaner, and more worth living, in my opinion. Well, Stephen Fry uses extremely emotive language. He chooses a topic that's upsetting for everyone, the death of infants. He then follows it with a series of rhetorical questions, not because he wishes to know the answer, but because he's already decided he has the answer. God doesn't care. The question that Stephen Fry poses is a little more than why does God not stop all the suffering? It's rather, why did God create a world with suffering? His specific question to God is, why did you create a world with such misery that is not our fault? Well, does the strength of Stephen Fry's argument put us on the back foot? We could put together a reply. We could begin with the fact that when God created the world, he created the world perfectly. There was no suffering. No suffering whatsoever in the world that God created. So immediately... His charge against God is wrong. We could continue. He says the misery that we live in is not our fault. And the specific example he gives, bone cancer in children, well, we all know that the small child did nothing to deserve his illness. But what Stephen Fry does do is he overlooks the misery that is in the world that is caused by war or broken relationships. That is to say, he overlooks the misery that is experienced, that is our fault. A lot of the suffering in the world occurs because humans are simply being humans. And we could explore how ultimately the suffering that we experience is because we live in a fallen world. Cancer, cataclysmic events, these all occur in this world because Adam and Eve sinned against God. The broken world that we live in is a consequence of God's image bearers living in hostility to the one who sustains us. 
Now, everything I've said is accurate and true. But is it really enough to put Stephen Fry's argument in its place? It certainly fails to tug on the emotions, as Fry's answer does. In fact, now I think about it, I'm regretting bringing up that quote at all. Well, today we come to the end of the book of Isaiah. And we're looking at the last two chapters of Isaiah. And as we read them, the themes of the last two chapters are not too dissimilar to the first two chapters of Isaiah. So if you remember back in Isaiah 1, he describes the disobedient son. This is Judah who has rebelled against their God. Then in Isaiah 2, we have described the day when people from every nation will flock to the mountain of the Lord so that they can be taught by God. So we have two themes established right at the start. Judgment against the people's rebellion and hope despite the people's rebellion. Then in Isaiah 65, God is ready to be found by his people, but his people are not looking. The offerings that the people make miss the mark so badly that they may as well be offering pig's blood. Now this doesn't necessarily mean they were actually offering pig's blood. Of course this is something that would totally be unacceptable given that a pig for an Israelite was an unclean animal. But it is the idea that the offerings they do make, that they think are good, are equally as unacceptable. So Isaiah 65 begins with judgment. But then we have Isaiah 65, verse 17 and onwards. Here is the hope of a new heavens and a new earth, where Jerusalem is a joy. Have a look at verse 20. God is promising a city where an infant will not live, but for a few days. It's a city where an old man will live a full and long life. And young men, well, they'll be a hundred years old and still considered young. When we've seen judgment language in the past, we've seen how houses have been built and others have lived in them. Vineyards have been planted and others have enjoyed the fruit. But in this new world, those who build and those who plant will be the ones who enjoy the fruit of their labour. This is describing a world without suffering. Then in Isaiah 66, we return to judgment. Heaven is God's throne, the earth is his footstool. And the people want to build a house for God. Clearly, he doesn't need a house. He doesn't need anywhere to live. God could manage very well without a temple. And when the people do build temples, well, they only misuse it. 
they make the mistake and think because they have the temple, they're correctly serving God. We have a repeat in verse 3 of what we've already seen. The oxes they bring to sacrifice to God are done in rebellion to God, so they are as effective as if they were killing a man on the altar. The grain offering is the correct offering, but it's done while serving idols alongside God. So they may as well be offering pig's blood. Once again, we have the judgment of God. But then we come to 66, verse 7 and 8, and we find hope again. What we have here is the imagery of a woman who gives birth without a labour. The point is, it's a labour where there's no pain. This imagery is multi-layered. On the first layer, it's the ease in which Jerusalem will be established as a city. It will happen with no difficulty. This will be something that happens for the people, not by the people. But we can't help but notice on another layer that we have an allusion here to Genesis 3 verse 16. It was the fall that brought pain in childbirth. But now in the new heavens and the new earth, childbirth will be free from pain. The point being, the effects of the fall will be gone. There will be no suffering. Then we come to the last section, to the end of the book. 66... Verses 15 to 24. And yet again, in this section, we find the themes of judgment and the themes of hope. Judgment, all those who have as good as offered pig's blood, will be under the wrath of God. But it will also be the time when God gathers his people together. Verse 19 speaks of Tarshish, Paul and Lud. Tubal and Javan. These places represent the extremities of the then known world from which God will gather people from every nation. As the Gentiles come from the nations, they will bring with them the Jews who have been dispersed around the world. And verse 21 describes how some of the Gentiles will become priests and Levites. Well, this is striking because even within Israel, there was only a select few who were able to become priests. But now the new heavens and the earth have arrived. It's a place filled with people from across the world and a place with no suffering. And it's a place we can all hope for. Now Stephen Fry has noticed something accurate about the world. This is not how it should be. There is something wrong. 
But had God put a stop to the world as soon as the suffering had begun at the fall, then God would have destroyed humanity and the earth with them. There'd be no suffering, but there'd also be no world. There would be no suffering, but there would be no people to enjoy the absence of suffering. It is the big oversight that the atheist makes when they ask, why does God not end all the suffering? The answer is simple. To end all the suffering would be the end of man. It would mean judgment. But it would be judgment without hope. But in his patience, God puts up with the sin of the world. And he will bring an end to suffering. He will create a world where there is no suffering. But he also intends to fill that world with people. And the God that we worship is not far removed from suffering because the hope we have been considering today is a hope that's been made possible through the suffering of God's servant. This then makes it a bold assertion to make the accusations and describe God in the way that Stephen Fry does. For in his accusation, Stephen Fry belittles not only the creator, but the redeemer as well. In the end, hope and judgment go hand in hand. If God is going to provide us with a world free from suffering, he will need to bring judgment upon those who reject his grace. And it's in bringing judgment upon those who rebel against him, he provides us the hope of a world full of blessing. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you sent your suffering servant into the world to bring an end to suffering. We thank you for all the mighty things that he did while on this earth. How he gave us a glimpse of a world where there would be no suffering. When he healed the lame, cured the blind, made the clean unclean clean, and even rose people from the dead. But we thank you, Lord, that we see his power ultimately when he suffered in our place. When he took the curse upon himself as he hung on that tree. That he defied the work of Satan and reversed the effects of the fall. And in doing so, brought in the new heavens and the new earth. Amen. Well, I mentioned at the start there'd be an opportunity to ask questions or make comments in light of what we've been thinking about this morning. So, any questions, any comments?
Yes, Ricky. Interesting question. Okay, just to repeat it for the recording, 65.1, who is the nation? So we read, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. Am I right in thinking that our confusion is around that we'd expect it to be Israel, but then at the end, it doesn't look like Israel because it's a nation who's not called by my name. Yeah. Yes. So, how I think we're supposed to understand it is, it is Israel. So, they're complaining to God and saying, why is your uh, hope not coming? Why is the hope not coming quicker? And he's saying, you can't complain about the delay because I've been ready to hear from you way before you were calling me. So I think that's the rationale there. And then I think when he says to a nation that was not called by my name, it's a criticism of them who, because they should be called by his name, but because in their rebellion they haven't been but to add into the pot, so that's what it means in this context, but later on, and I forgot to, I didn't record the reference, but Paul will use this as a reference to uh, the Gentiles being called by the name of God. So there is a double meaning there. I think he will take, I can't remember how much he takes, but at least the bit that to a nation that was not called by my name is referenced by Paul, referring to Gentiles. Yeah, so I think it's um, so they are now calling. You know, in, this, in the scenario, they're now calling, but he's delaying because the punishment isn't complete. But his criticism of them is, well, you weren't calling before, and when you were calling before, I was ready to hear. So you can't complain now that I'm you're calling me and I'm not responding because my my plan's still got to play out. So I've always been ready, I've always been there, I've always been available. It's just you've not always been calling me. Now you are calling me, I'm just going to bring out the fact that you weren't calling me. But I think that to a nation that was not called by my name, I think it's just a criticism that you should have been called by my name, you were given that opportunity, but you rebelled against me so you weren't behaving as one who was called by my name. Happy? Yeah. <laughs> Another question?
Yes. Um, how, what would you say is that, you know, it's even prior to us, why doesn't God just end something now? Oh, so now, yeah, today. Well, I guess um, I'd probably go to the bit in 2 Peter. So 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, verse 8. It says this. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but in his patience towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in, on it will be exposed. So particularly thinking in terms of the Lord is not slow, so verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So in his plan, God has um, a number of people that he is waiting to call, and that's going to take time. So obviously, you know, I guess you could think in terms of if um, at the end of Paul's ministry, um, Jesus returned, then obviously all those people would have been gathered, but all those that came afterwards wouldn't have been gathered. Similarly, if he ends it now, all the people who God is going to save so far would be saved, but then there'd be others who could and would be saved uh, that wouldn't be. So it's, it's the same argument, effectively. If God brings judgment earlier than planned then people who he plans to save will miss out. So, And God is going to fill his earth with people who he wishes to save. Right. Cool. Uh, time for one more, maybe? If there is one. Yes, Susie. Yeah, yeah, fine. Yeah, that's a good question. So um, let me just repeat it for the recording. So how do we, like, for example, if we were having a conversation with someone like Stephen Fry or on a similar subject, how would we engage with that without dismissing the suffering? How would we answer those questions without dismissing the suffering? Um, well, I do think it's worth saying at this point, 
the first thing I would say is that when people make statements like that, I don't think they're coming and saying, oh, I've got a question I'd really like an answer to. That's not what they're saying. Often they're saying, um, I'm going to say something, and that's going to leave you speechless, and so you can be quiet, thank you very much. That's what they're looking for. Now, having said that, if there is someone who does come and just say, oh, I've heard this argument, and what do you think about that? Then it's not to say that we couldn't come across someone who has got a genuine explanation, uh, sorry, a genuine desire to know the answer. I think in that case, I think I always think the best thing to do is to slow things down a bit. And if someone really or um, genuinely wants to know the answer, then then they'll be happy to slow things down. Because I, I think because whenever you guys ask, ask me a question, I feel very comfortable. And the, way, the reason I feel very comfortable is because I feel like I've got a context to answer the question in. You know, I can re- re- make reference to things and you know what I'm referencing. Um, whereas if I'm speaking to someone who doesn't have that biblical framework, everything gets misunderstood and everything, every comment I make gets lost or re-evaluated or misjudged and it just falls flat. So, to be honest, I think the best thing to do would be to say, yes, you've got a very good question about suffering, it's very legitimate, but let's just part that for a minute and let's do the God who makes self known. Because if you do the God who makes self known, you start to introduce that framework and then... It's a lot easier then to say, right, we've done the God who makes self known. We've come to the end of the study. Let's return to that question. You remember what we did in the first study when we talked about the fall? That's where suffering comes from. Um, And as well, particularly because it's such an emotive subject, I think doing that means we can step away from the emotive nature of it just for a moment to just say, oh, we're just doing this study. Now let's return to that and sort of use that framework to help us explain it. But of course, that's a big ask for them. You know, you're saying, well, come and give, give me seven weeks and I'll get to your answer. But then, on the other hand, is it a big ask? You know, this is their opportunity to get to know the person who created them, sustains them, uh, redeems them. I do remember once, always makes me laugh this, a fellow of mine, they used to do Christianity Explored, and a friend of mine said, oh, I always think it's too big an ask for them to do seven weeks, so I've cut it down to a three-week course. And I kind of thought, a big ask. <laughs> this is to find out about the Creator, your Redeemer. It's not really a big ask, is it? To be honest, if you, you know, what is it about pick up your cross and follow me that you're only asking them to do seven weeks, <laughs> uh, an hour or two hours an evening? Anyway, that's another, another thought. Okay, let's leave it there because um, I've answered three and time is going to get ahead of us. We're going to sing now, uh, Here is Love, and then we'll have a final reflection.